same China, different stories. We are the ones that found their way in a new life. Adopted babies, adopted babies from China. Welcome, Jade. Jade is in the UK and just completed her undergraduate studies in anthropology. It is very exciting that you discovered the podcast via the web search. Hi, Jade. Hi, Tara. Hi, Tara. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, in quarantine and like most people, just trying to think of things to entertain myself. Um, so I started to listen to a lot of podcasts and. Um, I think one day I was just thinking it would be really interesting if it was the Chinese Adoptee podcast. So I just searched it, I think, on the Google podcast platform. Yeah, yours was the first one to come up. And it's been like really interesting to listen to other people's stories and kind of learn about your own story as well. So, yeah, it's such a good idea to get the voices out into the world and like get a bit of an audience. That's so exciting. Today, we're going to talk more about your story, and also it's really exciting to speak with another person who is from the UK, because a lot of people who listen, a lot of people I've spoken with are in the US, and well, actually, there was one person in Canada, but mostly US individuals. Mm -hmm. Please share more about your story and your perspective of your adoption from the UK. Yeah, so I was adopted when I was 15 months old um, from a city in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, and that's in the northwest of China. My adoptive parents are white British, and I grew up in the north of England in a small town called Bewirral, um, but the closest city that probably people know is Liverpool. I have two siblings who are the biological children and my adoptive parents separated when I was quite young. So my mom kind of raised us all as a single parent. The area that I grew up in was really quite a white area. So for most of my school life, I would probably be the only non-white person in my class or maybe one of three non-white students. Mm. Um, so it was a really white environment. And all my friends in school were white. And obviously I went home and my family was white. So it was just a real lack of ethnic and racial diversity. When I was a child, me and my family would go to adoptee meetups with a organization called CATCH, um, which stands for Children Adopted from China. And that is kind of a UK-based organization. Mm. I think it's run by adoptive parents. So it's kind of geared to the parents. And we would do little events like dragon boat racing and go for like Chinese mm. meals and stuff. But I was quite young because my mum was a single parent, like I said, and the events weren't local. They were all spread across the UK. So it was a bit, quite a lot of effort to get all the free children and drive. It just wasn't a top priority. So we stopped going. And to be honest, I probably wasn't that upset about it at that <laughs> stage because as a child, I kind of rejected anything about it. I didn't see myself as Chinese and I didn't have any interests. So 
going to these events was like fun but it wasn't anything profound to me mm-hmm. so yeah I didn't really have a connection to China when I got to I'd say my late teens early 20s was when I started to really think about uh, my Chinese identity and my adoption affected how I felt about myself and what I thought about being Chinese so yeah it's quite a gradual development that's probably happened more recently but I think adoption's always been in the back of my mind and like thinking about it of course I enjoy that you really went into detail about your interest too because I was I was thinking about this while you were speaking and when I've spoken with other adoptees that most of our interest really doesn't come until our late teen years into the <laughs> early 20s and I do wonder if there's any children who are really young who actually do relate and connect to their culture as strong. I would say I share a similar perspective too, that when I was younger, I would go and do these activities, but never really connected with them as much as maybe now I would. Yeah, definitely. I think when you're a child and you're young, you're obviously just more innocent. And I guess thinking about race and ethnicity isn't, Something that you're knowledgeable about, but then when you grow up, Mm -hmm. natural process to start questioning things more. So yeah, it's definitely um, something that probably becomes more important to you as you get older and a bit wiser. Mm -hmm. And I also have heard other podcasts and from friends that when you're a child or when you're in your early teen years that you don't want to be different from anybody else Mm -hmm. the exposure to all the different cultural things in Chinese culture or for other people just exposure to different aspects of themselves that people don't want to be different and that's also I think something that everybody can relate to but yeah 100% I think as a child or programmed to want to fit in and be the same as everyone else because if you're not the same then something's wrong with you and I think definitely as a Chinese adoptee being the only Chinese person in my family and friends entire life for a very long time I kind of started to want to be white as Mm. really problematic as that sounds I can recognize thoughts and feelings when I was an early teenager wishing that I wasn't Chinese because not necessarily because I had anything against China and being Chinese, but because I was against being different and everything I viewed in life or was through fashion magazines, television, books, Mm. media. Um, It was always like the white protagonist, you know, and that's something that has been discussed recently in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and the conversations about race today is that you know a lot of the main narratives has always been from the white perspective and that just really makes you feel invisible when you're not white. You started to develop interest into your early 20s and that's also a pivotal moment because you decided to explore and do more studies related to anthropology especially from an adoptee perspective could you expand more on how you chose to go into the study of anthropology? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I think anthropology is a subject that not many people know too much about unless they are a social sciences major. I've definitely had a lot of people be like, what on earth is that? I think one person thought it was a study of spiders. My kind of journey towards studying anthropology at university has been really complicated. When I was 18, when I finished school, I went straight to university. For the whole of school, maths was my best subject. Um, that was the subject that I'd always gotten highest grades in and felt kind of natural to just follow that course and go and study maths. But when I got there, I just realised that I'd made a huge mistake. I found that I wasn't actually that interested in maths at school. But then when you start studying it at undergraduate level, it gets exponentially harder, um, as I unfortunately realised. It was also kind of a thing where to study to have a genuine interest in it. And it made it really difficult to study and you know, commit myself to the degree when it felt really pointless and I wasn't passionate. And then on top, I had a bit of an identity crisis because yeah. as most young people experience when they move out of their family home for the first time and they're away from their friends and their parents and um, are kind of finding their own identity on their own as an individual adult, all that is a universal experience. But when you're a transracial adoptee, you have a load of other stuff that kind of surfaces. For example, as a Chinese person studying maths, the first thing that happened was like I was stereotyped because, you know, it's that stereotype that East Asian people, which is like a really silly stereotype. But it was quite hurtful because people would say stuff like, oh, yeah, like, of course, you're good at maths because you're Asian. And it kind of invalidated my intelligence. Like, no, it's not because of my race. And in the UK as well, kind of a racial slur or kind of a microaggression that happens to East Asians or that I've experienced is complete strangers on the street would shout things at me like ching chong and they would put on a Chinese accent and say like ni hao and it was just you know that those are silly little things to some people but I think because I'd grown up in a white family and I had white friends I hadn't formed any sort of coping mechanism because nobody in my life had ever talked to me about racism and race and I think that's a huge problem for adoptees who are adopted um, not just Chinese adoptees, but any adoptee who has had a transracial adoption, where they're not being educated and prepared about the experiences of a non-white person of colour that you're going to experience when you go into the world and you're not protected by a bubble of friends and family who are kind and like who aren't mm. ignorant. Going um, back to the topic of like how I got to anthropology, that obviously studying maths was turned out to not be the route that I should take and I went back home um, and I felt really lost for quite a while. I just got a nine-to-five job and I was just kind of feeling like a failure and that I'm a university dropout, what do I do now with my life? And I think it took me a really long time to connect that for moving to another city and starting a different 
phase of my life triggered kind of a emotional down and um, I did struggle with my mental health at that point because you know adoption is a trauma and I think for a long time I hadn't let myself think about adoption as a negative because growing up emphasized that I was loved and that you know of course they acknowledged that you know I'd lost my biological family but we were more focused on the positives like you know I've got a loving family and I um yeah I have a comfortable life in the UK but I think that the way that adoption is discussed in general is usually from a savior narrative they only talk about how your life has been saved and how you have more opportunities than you would have if you were back in an orphanage in China mm-hmm. you know you need to address the aspect of adoption that is traumatic it's that you've lost links to or most adoptees have lost links to their biological family and how is that any different if you lose your family any other way so I think it's important to talk about adoption and mental health candidly because it needs to be destigmatized I mean mental health in general shouldn't be something shameful it's something that most people have had first hand experience with or know someone who's had experience with it so yeah I think it really took a lot of time for me to come to terms with the fact that I was struggling and I eventually did reach out and get professional help and I got um, therapy sessions and I also had some counselling from a specialised adoption counsellor which was helpful and obviously didn't solve all the problems because it's not a band-aid thing fix or solution but it definitely helped me to kind of talk through the feelings that I was having about abandonment and not feeling Chinese enough and not feeling accepted in the white community or the Chinese community. So after all that kind of downhill journey, I started to kind of feel confident with what I was going through and how I could move forward. And I started looking at new university courses. And I think I was looking at sociology, maybe, because it was something I thought I'd be interested in. Um, And I just stumbled upon social anthropology because it's also a social science. So it was in the same department. And I think I remember reading a little description and it was like, learn about human behavior and how humans, um, human difference and cultural difference, um, how that affects cross communication and also looking at topics about kinship, relatedness race um ethnicity and gender and I was like well that's literally I've been thinking about non-stop for the past year um and I was like well this is perfect this is what I want to learn about because then maybe if I learn from an academic point of view it will help me to rationalize the experiences that I've had and just get a more in-depth knowledge about those sort of issues and also the issues of other people So yeah, after that long journey, I finally went to university, studied social anthropology and actually just graduated. And for my final year thesis, I wrote it about transracial adoption from China. 
Oh, wow. Would you like to speak more about your thesis too? Yeah, so to kind of not go into too much detail because I don't want to <laughs> be talking for hours and hours, the project really started from the idea of not how Chinese adoptees sometimes feel like they're not Chinese enough. Um, the idea that because we are adopted from China and we are raised by families and parents who are predominantly white, that we feel alienated from the Chinese community. And I also wanted to explore Chineseness itself, like what does it mean to be Chinese? Because being Chinese can mean one thing for someone and then something completely different for another person. So to look at it anthropologically, I chose to look at the concept of ethnicity um, because I know there's so many different windows that you can look at identity and adoption. But I think ethnicity was something that stuck out to me because it kind of affects your everyday life because other than race, it's a con as well as race, it's a concept that is very like physical. That's mm -hmm. like, it's something that we notice the first time we meet someone. It was really interesting to see from an anthropological perspective what actually is ethnicity, because it's a word that we throw around all the time. It's always right. on those um, little surveys for the, when they want to get ethnic demographic information, like always the surveys, like what's your ethnic origin? Um, but what does that actually mean? And where did it come from? And I used the theory of an anthropologist called Frederick Barth, and he um, postulated this theory in, I think, 1969, where it was basically explaining that ethnicity is not so much about cultural content and ancestry and biology, but it's more about the acts of inclusion and exclusion. So... Of course, the whole idea of ethnicity originates from the kind of links that you have to your biological relatives. Like we are ethnically Chinese, supposedly because, you know, our biological families were from China and their biological families were from China. And it's like a long line of linkages. But in the modern day world, that's completely different because transnationalism exists, globalization exists. Not all people live in the country that their ancestry is from. Nowadays, ethnicity is more of a way that we separate ourselves into groups. Could be because of culture and religion. We might associate certain attributes to one ethnic group. But the fact is that those ethnic groups are ways in which we self-ascribe and ascribe to others kind of preconceptions of what we think a person will be like and what their history is. And Barth basically talks about how this is all constructed. You know, it's not fact because the concept of ethnicity wouldn't exist if humans didn't create it, much like the idea of race. It's a human constructed concept. I wanted to look at how for adoptees, people um, ascribe us to the Chinese ethnic group because of our phenotypical features, the way we look. Um, but they don't know that 
most of the time, you know, as adoptees, we have don't have any links to our Chinese ancestry anymore because we're adopted and the mm. ties have been cut off. And then it's also a paradox because we are constantly told you're Chinese. You know, you look Chinese. We're asked, where are you from? Where are you really from? Where are your parents from? That sort of thing. And at the same time, we're told by sometimes by the Chinese community, you're not Chinese. Um, you're not really Chinese because your family are white. You don't know how to use chopsticks. You've never been to China. You can't speak Mandarin. And so it's not necessarily an innate thing, ethnic identity, because if it was innate, then we would all, as Chinese adoptees, feel a strong sense of belonging to being Chinese. But evidently, we don't, because it's not just about biology. It's about so many other social factors. I interviewed, I think, eight adoptees for my thesis mm-hmm. and interwove their experiences with theory, and I also looked at a psychologist's paper, which I think was mentioned in your previous podcast with Sydney that she used in her master's thesis by um, a psychologist called Baden. And that looks at how adoptees go through a process of reculturation. And that reculturation process can happen at any time in their lives. And it could also just never happen. And I looked at how adoptees can kind of learn the cultural content of what it means to be Chinese without the acceptance of other Chinese people. Learning the cultural content is kind of not enough because we would still have those feelings of exclusion by the Chinese community. Holy cow, that is quite a (laughs) thought-provoking... Well, first, first I want to reflect... I guess it's ignorance on my part, but it's kind of a bummer to hear that your experience of people, people's ignorance in the UK is similar also to here in the US with people saying inappropriate racist slurs or Mm -hmm. stereotyping. So that's probably ignorance on my part. I'm a little bit sad. I thought that was just a US thing, but it's clearly not. And then second, what you were saying about ethnicity is actually more of a construct of humans separation into groups, which is kind of mind boggling for somebody who doesn't understand the field as in depth as yourself or probably Sydney too. But whoo, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how to articulate <laughs> and the reaction to that. Thanks. I hope I didn't rumble too much, but um, yeah, I think for the whole of my degree has been kind of a mind blowing phenomenal (laughs) where I'm just sitting listening to things like wow this makes so much sense but also it's kind of like really I could just sit here and think about it for years because it's so complicated well especially before when you first took a break from university and you sought out professional help and everything and then you came back to university completed your courses and work on your thesis it's almost like you put your mindset back into that same place you were before with, you were saying an identity crisis. I can't imagine the amount of turmoil and energy or emotional energy that probably took from you too. (laughs) Yeah, I think that happens. I mean, I knew going into it, it would be emotionally draining because I mean, that's always the case when you're 
doing an academic paper on something that's kind of quite personal to you. But I mean, it was difficult. I think it was the most difficult piece of work I've ever written. It forced me to think about difficult topics that provoked painful memories of how I felt and the experiences I had kind of all leading up to becoming an adult and dealing with those feelings related to adoption. But I think it was also extremely necessary. And it also feels like a little bit of closure. Um, I know that adoption is going to follow me for my whole life. Um, And that's just the case that adoption is something that affects probably every stage of your life. I think getting it down on paper and writing it out um, just really helped me to be like, okay, this is everything that I am thinking about in my mind and I can just throw it down onto 12,000 word document and then maybe not read it again for a little bit, maybe read it and yeah, and also get my degree from it. So (laughs) it was kind of like a little self-help project, but also a really interesting academic investigation too. Yes. Actually, this would be a good point to take a break. I usually ask, and when we previously spoke, you mentioned that you have been back to China on Mm -hmm. a heritage trip. But did you also study abroad also in China or did you study abroad somewhere else? Yeah, I studied abroad in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. And then you also did a heritage trip. Would you be able to share more about both of those experiences? Yeah. So I'll first talk about um, studying abroad because it's kind of related to the heritage trip too. But in my third year, so 2018, 2019, I did a year abroad in Hong Kong, which was really exciting. It was kind of the first time I had gone and lived abroad for a long period of time um, and basically the first time I'd ever gone to East Asia so it was really exciting and Hong Kong obviously is very different from mainland China because it's you know has its history with British colonization and that's completely changed the cultural landscape. I think it was I always say it was like the perfect transition to Asia because it was like the most western city of Asia because it was great in the fact that I was able to experience a different culture and you know learn about Hong Kong and about mainland China and be around other ethnically Chinese or Hong Kong Chinese people Um, but at the same time there was you know there was like Marks and Spencer's which is like a British store and we had like Shake Shack and, (laughs) you know, all those kind of Western things. So it didn't seem too much of a shock as I imagine it would have been to just going and spending a year in China, which I think would have been a little bit too much. But yeah, Hong Kong was really great. It was such a global city and I met people from all over the world. And it was also just really comforting to be around other Asian people for the first time in my life. Um, I'd never experienced that. And it was weird because I was only there, well, I was there for 12 months. So I guess that's quite a significant amount of time. 
at the end of it, I think I felt like I felt more at home in Hong Kong than I had felt at home in England, which is weird because I lived, have lived in England for all my life, like 22 years. I still felt more of a connection to the city that I lived in for 12 months. And I think that was mainly because I felt so comfortable there because I was just seeing other people that looked like me and you know, all the models and stuff on the billboards for Asian. And it was just a really great experience to see representation and not even purposeful representation, just like people lived their lives and they were ethnically Chinese. And that's what it's like to grow up in a Chinese or an ethnically Chinese country and to not be a minority for the first time in my life, which was like a really great experience. And during that year, I also went back to mainland China, um, which perhaps wasn't as positive as the study abroad experience mm-hmm. because it was a bit more real and like, you know, in Hong Kong, we were just doing fun stuff like going out clubbing and hiking mm-hmm. and going to the beach. And then I also like travel to a lot of countries in Southeast Asia. And But I knew that going to mainland China was like a big deal for me because I'd never been back. And I think I was ready. I was ready to go and see China and just go back because I thought it was a bit weird that, you know, I was Chinese, but I'd never been to China. And obviously, you know, some adoptees don't have that interest ever. And that's completely valid as well. But for me, I just wanted to go and see what all the fuss was about because I'd, <laughs> you know, heard about China all the time through like media and it's obviously a country with a huge international presence, not necessarily always good publicity. Yeah, so I went on a heritage tour, which I found out about through the Chinese Children International Group on Facebook. And it was actually run by an American adoption agency, but it was open to all adoptees. And I think traditionally, therefore, families like the parents and the adopted child and when they're younger but I was like well it's a free like it was a free trip because as an adoptee you get government funding so I was like well it's a free trip to China for 10 days and may as well like I don't think I'm going to be able to ever come or in the near future be able to afford to come back to China because flights from Hong Kong to China were really cheap but flights from the UK to China are really expensive so that was a huge reason why I'd never gone before because it was so expensive. So I went on this tour and it was 10 days long and I was with all American families. Like um, mm-hmm. all the families were American and they had adopted children from China and the age ranges were really big. I think the youngest was seven, a seven-year-old in their family. Yeah. And the oldest, I think, was adopted was an adoptee who was like 24 so she was similar to my age and it was actually really nice that were some older adoptees with their parents because I don't know what it would have been like if it was just me and then a bunch of mm. like kids and their parents but we went to all the main attractions and you know it was just very much a whistle-stop tour of China mm. we went and saw the pandas in Chengdu we went to the Great Wall of China we went to see the Terracotta Warriors. 
Um, and it was all really fast paced and like we would be in one city one day, you know, get a flight and go somewhere else the next day. So it wasn't really an in-depth look at China. It was just like the highlights. And I think that was done purposefully because as a, a tourist industry and as a adoption agency, you want to paint China in the most positive light possible to the adopted kids and their parents. You want to be like, come back to China and see your motherland and see how amazing it is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> learn about your culture but um, I talk about this in my dissertation is that the idea of having a motherland is just completely um, constructed too because we're always I think in the heritage tour concept is that you'll go back to China and you'll feel at peace and you'll find a connection to China just being there for 10 days and all your identity struggles will be fixed (laughs) and you'll be Chinese. But obviously that's not the case because I was just staying in like four star hotels and going to tourist spots and not meeting locals, just like Mm -hmm. being a tour uh, group with a guide. So that definitely, you know, I'm glad I went on it. But at the same time, it wasn't the most meaningful trip, which I was kind of disappointed at first because I think as an adoptee you build up a kind of perception of what China's going to be like and you have these expectations and then when you get there you just kind of realize it's maybe not what you thought it would be and then have like a be quite disappointing but I loved China as from a tourist perspective I love China I think it's a beautiful country and there's like so many cool places to see it but I think being in China is emotionally exhausting as an adoptee. I remember the first night I got there, I literally was like crying in my hotel room because it was like, I've waited years and years to come back to China and I'm here and it doesn't feel as special as I thought it would. And also my, I had difficulties getting a Chinese visa. I'm not sure. I think you've been back to China, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how what your experience was, but I think I made it overly complicated because I was applying for a Chinese visa whilst in Hong Kong as a British citizen. Oh, wow. So, um, because I not actually planned, like pre-planned a trip to China. And then when I got to Hong Kong, I was like, I think I need to go because it's so close. So I had a series of very stressful visits to the visa centre where they first rejected me And they said, no, you can't apply for a visa here because, you know, you've got a British passport and you used to have a Chinese passport. So that overcomplicates everything. When Mm. I had friends who were, you know, a friend who had an Australian passport, a friend, friends who had European passports, who had easily applied for a Chinese visa in Hong Kong and been granted it. I mean, they also had struggles, but in different ways, because the Chinese embassy are so exact with every detail down to like the photo that you submit for your visa if you've got Mm -hmm. strand of hair covering your eye then like you have to take new ones but I was rejected several times to get a Chinese visa and that in itself was an emotional struggle because I felt a bit silly like getting so worked up about it but in a sense it kind of felt like another rejection from China like you know I wanted to go back to the country that I was born I was born in and they were they were making it so difficult to 
legally get a visa and go through all the bureaucratic things but I really persisted and I just had to get all my documents like I had to get my adoption papers my old Chinese passport that I used what my parents used when I was a baby after they adopted me to bring me to the UK I had to get the birth birth certificates of my adoptive parents just like all those kind of legal documents to prove that I was who I was and that I'm not like I don't know some spy or something I don't know (laughs) but so yeah I finally got on the visa went to China got there and it was just like a very overwhelming experience like I'm glad I went but it was a very uh, chaotic experience (laughs) yeah oh I'm sure first time I went back to China I was 11 years old the entire process for getting a visa and everything my parents had done I honestly don't remember it that well. I guess in that sense, since I was so young at the time, I didn't have to worry about all that process to the extent that everybody does when you're a little bit older. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probably so much easier to apply in the country you're a resident of. Um, Possibly. (laughs) But I think, yeah, I made it a bit complicated for myself anyway. But yeah, the thing with the Chinese passport, I didn't even know I had one until I went to apply for a Chinese visa and they were like oh you uh you need all these documents and then I rang my mom and I was like yeah they're telling me I need all these things do I have them and she was like yeah and she had to mail them to me from the UK oh my gosh but I got to have a look at my passport and see the little picture of me as a baby and see Uh... the passport and it kind of that was kind of weird as well just seeing like the document and being like, hmm, I was a Chinese citizen at one point in my life for a very short yes. amount of time. Would you have any interest in going back to the province or the city that you were supposedly born in? I kind of thought about it, but the city that I was born in, it's really north. So that's geographically, like, really far away. And, you know, during my time my year abroad in Hong Kong I actually did go back to China for the second time just on a really short trip but that was more to see my friend who was studying abroad in Shanghai and I literally was there for about three days and I think going to cities like Shanghai it was a little bit more familiar because you kind of hear about these places they're more in the media like Beijing, Shanghai they're more accessible but Xinjiang just seems like a place where I would only go for the sole purpose of maybe going to my orphanage if it still exists I'm not even sure if it's still there as Mm -hmm. you probably know most of the institutions have been closed down but then I don't know whether I'd want to spend so much money just to go all the way to see an Mm -hmm. orphanage Um, I think it would be maybe a little bit upsetting so yeah, maybe if I, when I'm a bit more financially independent and stable <laughs> and if I felt the desire to kind of go back and see that city or the town. But at the moment, I think I don't have any real desire. Is the, is the area that you, your town, but the yeah. minorities are being mistreated, right? Yeah, it's, um, it is literally the city that's happening. That's in, what I thought. Okay. Um, a rumpshi or a rumchi, I'm not sure how to pronounce it in Chinese. 
that's the city where they essentially doing ethnic cleansing for the Uyghur, I think it's Uyghur population, the Muslim population that are living there. So yeah, in that sense as well, it's just not a very, I wouldn't feel safe going at the moment because it is distressing to hear the things that are happening there and the kind of violation of human rights that are happening. And yeah, of course, with COVID-19, nobody's really traveling anywhere at the moment or they shouldn't be. Uh, and uh, although even China probably isn't at this stage, probably isn't the highest risk in the world because it's just, you know, taken over every country. But I don't think I would feel comfortable going to China at this point or to anywhere, like flying anywhere, because we don't know when a second wave is going to hit and how safe it will be. But before COVID-19, I did genuinely consider after graduating either going back to Hong Kong or going to China for a year Mm. because I really just enjoyed living in Hong Kong for a year so much that I was like I want to go back to Asia but now obviously as well without going into too much detail and like political conversation everything that's happening in Hong Kong at the moment too um, Mm -hmm. with China's new security law and kind of the not so gradual reintroduction of Hong Kong into China's kind of control, which Mm -hmm. obviously is violating the terms of a handover. And I could talk about that for a long time, but it's, I think it's just, it's really distressing and upsetting to hear about just the lack of freedom that Hong Mm -hmm. Kongers are facing. But at the same time, as an anthropologist and as a, like trying to think about it rationally, I also can see the perspective that, you know, Hong Kong, the island, and was colonised by Britain. You know, that wasn't, that was problematic. Colonisation is never a good thing. So even though their democracy and kind of Hong Kong has been built and has changed the political system in that kind of autonomous region or the yeah, the region of Hong Kong, it was built upon colonisation, which is evil. And so some people obviously think that, you know, China rightfully owns Hong Kong. So it's just very complicated. But that Mm -hmm. kind of, all the protests and the civil unrest and COVID-19 kind of put a stop to me being able to go to Hong Kong, which... I'm upset about, but at the same time, people are experiencing huge issues that is nothing compared to me not being able to move there. So that kind of stopped me from going back. And then with China, obviously, I was considering teaching English, but then I know that that isn't necessarily the easiest job to get when you're ethnically Chinese going to China. So at the moment... I don't think I'll be going to live there anytime soon, but it is something that I would like to do in the future. And maybe even not just China or Hong Kong, maybe like South Korea or Taiwan or Japan, because I did really enjoy um, learning about different Asian cultures. And it is a part of the world that I would feel really comfortable going back to and learning more. 
Is there anything you would want to hear from other adoptees or people where adoption is a huge part of their life? Yeah, I think it's so important for me personally. It's been so important to join adoptee groups like CCI and Subtle Asian Adoptee Traits and those online platforms because I have actually met adoptees through those online platforms and one of my friends that I met through CCI her name's Naomi and she actually makes YouTube videos about being a Chinese adoptee and those videos were so relatable for me when I was watching them Um, and I think that's the beauty of the adoptee community is that we all have very unique experiences and just because we're all adopted from China doesn't mean we have the same kind of perspectives but I think we share similar experiences and Mm -hmm. it's really really nice to see a blog post or see a YouTube video or you know listen to a podcast and Mm -hmm. be like that could literally be the story of my life too because when I listened to your podcast with Sydney and kind of the discussions about coming to terms with feelings of abandonment and trust issues I think that's something that I've definitely experienced and it's very interesting to hear other people talk about those issues so eloquently and kind of put into words what you've been feeling I think to other adoptees I would just say to definitely reach out to adoptee communities and continue making content related to adoption and just never stop talking about your experience of being an adoptee because I think sometimes I can feel like oh no I'm sharing too many articles about adoption in China and (laughs) I wrote a dissertation on it and my whole life could seemingly be revolving around adoption but I think you know it's a huge part of our lives and that's not necessarily a negative thing it should be something that we feel empowered by and using our voices is something that can be really powerful and I think just adoptees should continue to do it. Mm. Lots of very great conclusion for this episode is there any social media that you would want to share? Uh, yeah, my Instagram is jade.laverick. I don't really use it that often, but I do follow a lot of adoptees already. And it is, you know, it's kind of weird how social media, you can just connect with so many people. You probably never yeah. met them in your life, but it's nice to see their lives like through pictures. And obviously <laughs> Instagram isn't real. Like we all know it's just a curated version of what we put ourselves to, out there to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's nice to see uh, other adoptees and see them just, you know, talking about adoption, but also just living their lives too. And yeah, just being able to relate to some of our experiences, like when they post their pictures of their family pictures and it's like their white parents and them. It's really nice to see that because. I think it's not something that I was used to seeing and I think it should be normal it should be normalized Mm -hmm. to see pictures of parents that aren't the same race and ethnicity as their children because I think for a long time it's been something that's been seen as a bit strange when it's our life experience so yeah (laughs) perfect 
Well, thank you for talking with me, Jade. This was a really insightful conversation. Thank you. Yeah, it was really nice to um, be able to speak and yeah, to talk about my experience a little bit more. Well, goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to ABC. We are on major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Please rate and review. You can email adoptedbabiesfromchina at gmail or direct message adoptedbabiesfromchinapod on Instagram and Facebook if you would like to share your story. Bye for now. Bye.